How's it going? <laughs> great. We're great. Nothing will ever get to us. <laughs> Nothing gets you down. Nothing. So, so welcome to the folks tuning in. This is the first installment of the gastropocene, uh, a fun little term that we came up with at like two in the morning, messaging back and forth, trying to come up with what we're trying to call this thing we're doing. And um, before we get into the subject at hand that we want to talk about, we're going to talk a little bit about this name and um, where this project came from, why we thought it was important. So the first thing is this, this idea of the gastropocene is kind of a play on like the Anthropocene, right? That, um, you know, we, we live in a time where humanity is managing the global climate, right? And you know, in kind of talking about like what um, what traditional food systems looked like, what humans have done prior to like industrialization, um, you know, the, the question for us came up of, well, when wasn't the ecosystem stewarded by people and managed by our vision of what it should be, right? From the, the burnings of the, the Midwest to, you know, the the uh, Dehesa farms and, um, you know, across the globe, how those landscapes were managed by native people, right? So there's never really been a time since humanity has existed, especially across the planet, where it really wasn't some sense of like an Anthropocene, right? A, a time of humans that managed and uh, guided what the climate and ecology looked like. However, things have changed in the last couple hundred years. This idea of like, um, you know, shelf-stable foods, um, processed foods, uh, uniform foods across place and time, uh, really defines a different era in what it means to be human, right? Um, our food has always been from the place around us. And um, for the first time ever, that's not the case. Mm -hmm. and, and that's kind of where this idea started coming from. And now I've talked a lot, so I'm going to let Aisha talk. <laughs> yeah, I guess uh, something that we take for granted but isn't something that we think about and a simple question that we wanted to ask that would sort of unravel, I guess a way for us to see how all of this is connected is where does your food come from, right? Like it's a pretty simple question, um, but the mere fact that what colonialism does and, and capitalism is modern day colonialism is essentially separates us from our land, but also from each other in various ways. So you don't know where your food comes from. You don't know the people that make your food. You don't know the people that make your clothes. You don't know uh, your neighbors and your lives are generally very isolated, right? And that's that alienation is sort of the function of capitalism. But the way that it does that and the way that it has that power over you is by commodifying everything in your life where you have to go to market and actually buy it, whether that's food or clothes. And that's because they're produced in factories that are, that they could be oceans away from you now. And that's essentially what we're talking about when we know that that is the framework of food production right now. And there's been an increased focus on food consumption, I guess, in the realm of environmental justice and social justice. But I guess we're trying to figure out what does it actually mean to eat ethical food in the full sense of it, right? Not just telling yourself you're eating ethical food, and making yourself feel better about it, but not just following a label on a product because it says eco-friendly, right? But what does it actually mean in the full sense to eat food that preserves, sustains, and takes care of your ecosystem, right? If, especially if you're not actually eating food made anywhere near you, but going to stores and buying it off of shelves. Yeah, so this project started with a zine, a multi-chapter zine. We've released the first chapter. And uh, ensuing chapters will come in the next coming weeks. 
Uh, it also came with a pairing of memes, um, some of which were hotly contested. And um, instead of debating in the comments section, at least mostly debating in the comments section, uh, we, we decided it made a lot more sense to engage with a lot of the conversations we knew were going to happen from this process um, here, where we can yeah. you know, talk about it. Yeah. Uh, for folks that are listening, this is a live stream, so there can be uh, people can comment if they choose to. Um, and it's, uh, it's a good way for us to engage with the subject. And um, I think in, in the spirit of what we're talking about, building that sense of uh, ownership and community, that requires us also putting ourselves out there and mm -hmm. engaging um, in a, a very uh, live way. Which, uh, very vulnerable yeah. way to be yeah. honest we do not have to do because this is unpaid time energy and labor so just keep that in mind we are all strangers to each other in some way right we don't have real relationships with each other in real life so be nice thank you <laughs> that was just an announcement that i'd like to make <laughs> also yeah. another thing that i wanted to start off with though is just something to observe um our i guess our comments on the like so we posted a snippet of the actual first chapter on instagram and then we posted a series uh, like a meme carousel that was inspired by that first chapter and we're going to include all of that in the zine and more because we usually have like 40 memes that we made and like you know you see 10. um and we'll post a series too of memes but anyways just seeing the comments uh i think this is a good point to start with it's just this interesting manifestation of colonialism that people don't see, which is beautiful because you have this clear, like, you know, what we're talking about, especially the first chapter is how greenwashing and green capitalism look like in the realm of food, right? When there's certain corporations and a whole industry that has been created as a result of this hyper-focus on individual personal diet choices, and now there's a thriving capitalist industry that is entirely based on plant-based vegan products that is essentially harping on individualism itself to get people to buy these products, right? The idea that people's individual diet choices are going to be ultimately sufficient in solving the climate crisis or the environmental crisis at large. And uh, even if not, just the idea that there's you know, one type of diet that is considered ethical and everything else is unethical and immoral, right? And then when you go look in the comments, it's interesting because the way that that manifests in many ways is now we have, for example, folks that will straight up just say that, you know, all meat eaters, any consumption of meat anywhere in the world at any point in history and time in any community anywhere is immoral and savage and brutal, right? And then now you like, to go on that thread a little deeper, the next step is saying, oh, any community eating meat, therefore, is savage and brutal. And therefore, let me be the arbitrator of what kind of dominant diet model and food system should be enforced globally around the planet to save everybody of all these savages of their practices. And I will now come and tell everybody how to eat, right? I'm sorry, but that just sounds literally like a copy paste of the white man's burden. And it's just amazing to me that it's so normalized that people can actually have that these stances, right? There's only one way to live. And it has to be globally enforced without any care in the world for like, like actually whether, like what kind of thing should be enforced if your entire ideology is based on being better than someone. Right. And that's like how you sleep at night. So it's just fascinating to me watching just colonialism happen again in real time. And people are just like 
willfully like just it's fine to tell each other how to live it's fine to go go and just enforce these ideologies elsewhere without giving a shit about like indigenous communities and everybody living there regardless <laughs> no for sure and i think um you know that that can manifest really easily on the internet because of the fact that it's yes. behind a screen and again when you when you uh, consume information and knowledge through that format i think it inherently becomes uh, less nuanced, even, even, even in a book, like, you know, you're reading a book, it's that you're, you're basically engaging in a one-sided conversation. Right. Mm -hmm. And that, uh, has some benefits for sure, but also, uh, is extremely limiting. And then we've created this media culture of very sh fast snippets that are designed to be consumed in a few seconds. But and it's then... important because I guess people don't even realize, like, I think it, this is why we encourage everyone to, like, think about digital capitalism and surveillance capitalism and how it's literally intended to be a infrastructure of capitalism that's supposed to isolate you from your community, right? Like, you go to work, you do the same thing every day, you're on this hamster wheel, you come home, you have, like, iotas of moments in the middle of the day where you have some free time and you dedicate that time on these digital platforms. That's where you consume all your information. That's where you like create these virtual communities, which means that you're entirely existing in some interface that is state controlled for the entirety of your day until you go to sleep, wake up and do it all over again. Right? So it's really important to understand that they want us to be on these platforms and they want us to be fragmented and they want us to like all of this, like this rage machine, right? The fact that we can post something, which is literally a whole post that basically just said, you know, vegan capitalism is still capitalism. <laughs> and this whole idea that you are fundamentally just a better person and a more moral person because you're not eating meat, which basically means anyone that eats meat is just evil. That might actually be breaking solidarity and not at all helping the planet like you think it yeah. is. That's basically all we said. And it can get this kind of response, right? Which is because there's no real, like we don't have relationships with people that are like, that are strangers commenting in our threads, right? And it's really easy to have that kind of like vitriol and and just like hate and like bullying. Like literally both of us could just get called constantly like slave owners and like rapists and murderers because we, we, we did this, right? Which tells you so much about, can you imagine in person if we just like shared this with our commune and someone just got up and was just like, you are, you know, can you even, like someone that knows us, has a relationship with us, knows that we're like semi-decent people. We fuck up here and there and we learn and we move on. You know what I mean? We're not the worst. And then just straight up, just acts like that. It's just wild. The, the comment section made in real life. <laughs> yeah. So, so this is basically our preface of like, this is, a bit, you know, while we can't do that, let's sit in our community and have this conversation because like it's 2022 and like that just <laughs> isn't an option really. Um, you know, this, this is our best effort to do that and to start engaging with people on a, a very, you know, at least for you guys face to face for us, it's face to screen uh, conversation where we can have, we can deliver that nuance that exists in the conversation that like, no, we're not saying vegans are bad or something like that, but rather, uh, a, a bigger, com a comprehensive conversation around um, what exactly is going on with our food system today, because I think that's the big piece. Uh, there's a lot of misinformation about um, how food is made and how um, how simple transactional relationships um, can exist or don't exist um, with how our food is produced. And um, basically what we're going to do for the show is 
go through chapter by chapter ish of the the zine and try to cover everything there go into a little bit more detail hopefully if people are listening and want to ask questions or have commentary or whatever please chime in say whatever you want to say uh we've already had a few folks um comment in and um you know hopefully we'll have a little bit of fun and everyone walks away feeling like they learned something new including us so um i'm gonna actually give it over to aisha because the first subject is kind of yours uh well i'm gonna make it yours hey it's yours um i get I, around the concept of like even talking about this concept of veganism is really loaded right yeah yeah i, I guess people saw that in real time we made that point <laughs> yeah and I mean, the why is really important, I guess. The why, the reason that it's loaded is because of people don't understand, I guess, sometimes the difference in the evolution of late stage capitalism, right? Where it's a lot more powerful. There's one way to control people, which is to show up at their door, put a gun to their head and tell them what to do, right? That's overt violence. That's one type of control. But the other type is to actually tell people they're free while they're being oppressed, right? And then you and design society in every way to, to actually validate them in certain ways to like feed into their egos and their individualism, which is what late stage capitalism really harps on, right? Where people are just like eternally spending the rest of their lives self-optimizing, building these curated brands and, and, and versions of themselves, right? In order to be perceived as a good person because so much of your like survival in society will be able to like, is dependent on that, right? Like your net worth, the dollar sign that's attached to your to you as a person. And then you realize capitalism does that to everything, right? <laughs> capitalism commodifies plants, animals, this whole planet and everything on it to objectify it and essentially convert it to a profit that can be uh, a product that can be profited off of, right? And that's, we, we are that and everything around us is that. So I think it's controversial because of the individual element that as a result of this type of capitalism, people have attached so much of their worth to individual identities, right? And our egos are bred and are, are like, it sort of leads to this like, the way you can thrive and be successful under capitalism is if you're a narcissist, essentially, right? If you just think you're better than everyone else, you spend your life trying to compete with other people, people that you care about sometimes, to climb the ladder, get to the top. And all of that goes boils down to this one idea that's drilled into our minds that you should want to be better than other people, right? Like you should want to get degrees and jobs and accumulate wealth and have ideas then about you that are fundamentally indicators that you are superior to someone else. That is all of society, right? So of course, when, when we talk about criticizing like green capitalism and talking about how maybe not everyone in this world has to be vegan for this to be a decent world, then it, it, it actually like it's personalized, right? People take it personally and they can't, I, I guess like the, the greatest thing is, can we understand that we're building a world where a multitude of worlds can coexist, right? And not just coexist, but that is the only way we can do this. This is how we survive, right? By sustaining and cultivating and protecting and fighting for our diversity. And I mean real diversity, not in the diversity inclusion bullshit type way, but like the type of way where we're actually understanding that our communities are different. There's thousands of ways of being, existing, eating, growing, living on your land. And that has to be protected. And that has assisted outside the framework of colonialism, capitalism for so long, right? And it's possible to do that ethically without hierarchies, without state control. So I think that's kind of the big picture of how do we like, how do we actually move towards that? Yeah. And I think that's something you see manifest um, in general in politics, because um, people are in, uh, I'm sorry, this is like a very 
broad statement, but I think most people are not um, really okay with other people having different political ideologies that, and not in the sense of like, oh, they just don't get, it's usually a sense of, oh, they just don't get it yet. They haven't figured it out. You know, it, like there's an objective truth to politics and, you know, how uh, communities should organize in these types of things. Um, whereas like those frameworks have been built on uh, a history that has existed in places and they're nuanced and based on that place, not like a, a framework that you can just stamp on a landscape or a, a group of people, you know, mm -hmm. whether it's, oh, you need to read Bookchin or, you know, whatever it might be, you know, people find this thing attached to it and it's just everyone else hasn't figured it out yet. I, I am the sole arbiter of like um, that type of knowledge. And also that knowledge is, um, you know, I, I exist at the pinnacle of that knowledge. Like there's nowhere for it to go from here. Uh, and I think that plays out um, not just in politics, but also uh, whether it's foods or basically any, any part of our um, developed identity. And I think, bringing this up back to like the, the conversation around veganism, you know, we, we think about um, how we identify with that politics and then how we identify with all of the other pieces of who we are, you know, consuming mm -hmm. food and so on. Um, and part of veganism is uh, like inherently, if it's something that's being, you know, required of everyone to make the planet sustainable or whatever it might be um, that, and we'll talk about, um, the, the nuance to the conversation of everyone should be vegan uh, in a little bit. Um, but that whole conversation, generally speaking, because of the way uh, food is produced for vegan communities, uh, further separates individuals from those local ecosystems, those local histories, um, those landscapes, and uh, what those landscapes will be in the future because of things like climate change. And further literally emboldens colonialism. I will say that to the death. Like if we start enforcing models of solving problems by then enforcing those solutions onto the rest of the world, like, or, or implicitly doing that by saying that not doing that is immoral, right? Not living that way of life, not eating like that, not living like that, not caring for your land like that is, is, immoral the moment we start saying that we end up just doing what capitalism did which is just reform colonialism to make it more palatable right there's going to be different ways of doing colonialism we're just going to have to decide if we've actually learned lessons from how it's gone so far or not <laughs> yeah much much like um the way each landscape can be uniquely uh stewarded appropriately mm -hmm. uh each landscape can be uniquely colonized uh mm -hmm. in such a nuanced way and i think that um, is the most dangerous thing that we envision it as like this, um, you know, bull in a tractor, a, a tractor shop, a bull in a, uh, what, what word am I looking for here? Bull in a glass shop? I don't know. Yeah. Whatever. It, it's <laughs> nine o'clock at night. I am yeah. tired. I put a window in today. Um, so um, China shop, that's the word. I got there. Um, but in reality, colonialism is very good at... Um, looking at what we're doing and looking at what people really want and manipulating that for them. Right. Like that, that is the hallmark of like, you know, people, you know, you look on social media and it's like, Oh, you know, everyone complains about, you know, Instagram and like how it manipulates people. And it's like, it's manipulating you to listen to more people like you. And yeah, like yeah, that, yeah. that is a problem, but it's, but you don't think of that as the problem. Right. Even right. though it's literally gaming you, to continue to consume even, the thing that you want to. 
Yeah, and even, and this is confusing, right? Because we're shaping social media as it's shaping us. Like, like that's how culture works, so it's really complex. But at the end of the day, who holds power, right? We're individuals. All of these platforms are controlled by corporations in the state, right? So it's not even just they're getting you to, like, make you listen to what you want to listen to. It's actually monitoring you and, like, recording your behavior and your actions so they can create predictive algorithms that ultimately shape you such that they can intervene and actually tell you what to think, like get you to be in these echo chambers. And they're called echo chambers because they may, they validate you in certain ways, right? They, they get you to focus on your identities. They get you to think that you as an individual, right, are better than other people in some way, right? Which is why we, we, we have these like terms like rage algorithm and stuff, right? Because literally like the way to get more likes and, and more attention on social media is to inspire people, like just increase in viewer content, right? It doesn't matter if it's good or bad. It could be like really hateful or really supportive. It doesn't matter, right? To the, to the algorithm, it's all one and the same, right? So it drives us into extremes and it polarizes us into like either these really validating niches, right? Which makes it impossible for us to grow and learn from other people, especially people that are different than us, or it just creates this constant thing where people's entire identities are shaped by their like what they're pissed off at on social media, like what they're enraged about. That's just it. <laughs> yeah, yeah, and I think that plays out into how um, I feel like as somebody who was a vegetarian for a decade, um, how quickly I feel like the more extremist militant side of veganism has become more mainstream. Um, very quickly and something that was like in generally in general like more considered um, you know unacceptable has just become very normalized again like um, oh that's actually you know, a good point Andy maybe what we should say that we weren't able to talk about is what our personal experiences are in terms of our like personal practical knowledge or like history or whatever with this stuff like I don't know if people I think that's important sometimes because it's ironic when people it, insult it provides me. context yeah yeah it gives it gives certain context right so for example so for me um I guess like community wise in terms of like where I'm from I'm born I was born in the global south so I was born in India and but the communities that come from are two very different communities my dad is Afro-Indian Hindu and my mom's like a South Asian minority Muslim so that context is like very important for me shaping like how I saw like living in impoverished communities early on in my life, like how food systems worked, right? From two very different perspectives, like a quarter, like totally vegetarian, a quarter pescatarian because they're Hindus living on the coast of India. So they're fishermen, what they eat is what they get that morning and whatever they have on the land that they tend to, but also it floods, which is why they have to, like sometimes you just don't, they're not able to actually harvest crops for a, a good part of the year. So they have to actually rely on a lot of marine life, right? And, and then also like from the Muslim end of it, like how to actually do ethical, like coexistence of animals and plants and, and microbes and all on the, on the land that you're tending to, right? And, um, and those food systems. So even something like halal meat, like what does it mean to actually have, like do you go through the process and what are the requirements and, and like learning all that and actually having to do it right with my hands. <laughs> and I think that's important. Like when you actually have that kind of experience or try to have that experience or even just learn about it, right? Learn about it from that perspective. Like if I have to do this, what does that mean? And it, it pushes you to learn not just about your community, but other communities, how it's been done elsewhere, right? And the practicality of like coming here to the US and then suddenly seeing us stripped from our land in so many different ways and then realizing that people have no idea 
how a lot of this stuff works in practice. <laughs> yeah. No, Andy, for, what's your context? <laughs> yeah. I, my parents are also immigrants um, close to the global south, southern Italy, which uh, depending on who you ask and how, how much they know Italy um, could be considered fairly similar. Um, my grandfather was a farmer, uh, came to the U.S., uh, moved to the city because that's where the jobs were had his, you know, I was the, the house on the street that the, you know, every inch of the yard was like garden grapevines mm -hmm. everywhere. That was where I grew up. Um, I wanted to get away from that. I went, I did the whole vegetarian thing because it was 18 and angsty and, um, <laughs> cared about animals. And like, I, I felt like if I couldn't kill something, I couldn't eat it. Um, you know, that came full circle as I kind of returned to this uh, stewardship type of lifestyle. And, um, you know, that that process is a lot to learn to. I, don't, I won't say learn because I didn't really relearn it, but engage with it as the the um, the person managing that process versus, mm -hmm. you know, the kid who's there and is like there to help. Um, that those are, you know, you're not in charge. You don't own that responsibility. Uh, it's a fundamentally different relationship. Right. And in that process, um, or accepting that process rather helped me, uh, engage with like what it meant to be human in a way. I don't, uh, I don't think anything else has ever done really. Yeah. Um, but that, that's kind of how I came full circle and kind of what my background is, mm -hmm. uh, around like meat and food and food, food consumption. Um, so one of the things I think that we're both drawing to that's really important is this question of like connection to place, connection to land, connection to food, right? You have a very different relationship when you have that close connection. And I don't mean like growing a tomato plant in, on your balcony. Like and you should, you absolutely should if you can. Um, like by no means am I saying not to, but there, you know, there's a very fundamental difference between like um, trying to understand where your food comes from and relating to that food in a way that you are responsible for, mm -hmm. um, especially when it comes to livestock or even thinking about the relationships of the food you're growing or raising mm -hmm. and the landscape around you. Right. Because that, that is a very different relationship when, um, you know, you are, you've got sheep or cattle or whatever, and like the decisions you make impact the wildlife. Right. Um, and, and I think, having that relationship and understanding that connection we have with the local ecosystem around us is really fundamental in reshaping how we think about what food is, how we relate to it, where it should come from and what it should look like. Yeah. And I think it changes even everything that we perceive politically, right? Like it's a part of praxis in terms of understanding something, something simple, like a political concept, the hierarchy should not exist. And then actually trying to practice that in your day-to-day -day life and embody that in your relationships, not just with other people, but with literally all non-human life forms in your ecosystem. And then you actually see how difficult that is, like difficult to embody that and difficult to not reduce it to really reductive colonial binaries, like where the only role that you can play in relation to an animal is either their savior or something that's just consuming them like an object, right? Like, what does it mean to exist and like the nuances and complexities of what it actually means to be a part of nature and not separate from it? Yeah. Yeah. And I think, you know, in terms of um, like veganism, I think uh, the reason we've seen a rise in veganism the last 40 or so years, really the last 20, and I think it's not coincidence that it has continued to accelerate, is that we've become increasingly disconnected from our food. And um, that comes from a number of different places, from the anthropomorphization of um, animals to 
uh, just fundamentally not relating to animals other than pets that, I mean, the, the fact that people call their pets their kids and the, the relationship between that and veganism, like, and that they've been growing in popularity, um, I don't think is coincidental. Like, I think we, yeah. uh, because of our lack of relations with non-human things, there we, go. Yeah. Um, we, we place those human relations on non-human things because we don't yeah. know how... We don't know how, it's almost like if every nail is a hand, if every, what the, I can't talk today. If every, um, if every, I don't know, flower is a rose, then you think all flowers are roses. Yeah, I was going with the go. nail with a hammer, but I couldn't remember how that rolled out. Um, and we have to learn that nuance again, right? We have to learn how to relate to things around us again. And that begins fundamentally with relating to our ecology, right? And it's really important because I think we talk about it in terms of theory, right? And then there's praxis, which is like the practical play application of all of this in your day-to-day -day life, right? If you think about this in terms of a relationship with a human being, you can like have all these hypotheticals about what it means to do reciprocal equitable dynamics. You can have this all, all these ideas about like what relationship anarchy should look like, but the way you're going to do it is actually being in that relationship, right? That's really when it's going to come into being where you co-create this relationship to not just like for the health of each other, but the health of everyone around you, right? Because it's responsibility for you to show up in relationships that are regenerative to like your entire ecosystem, right? So that's when you actually do that in practice. And I think that piece is really important that people sometimes don't realize that there's no way to just know any of this. Like, just like there's no way to know how to be in a relationship with someone. There's no way for us to just know how to be in a relationship with our land to make assumptions like no meat is good, right? Meat is bad, which is, such a reductive way of thinking about everything right and it's just like therefore it's okay to like this is a process of figuring that out like we're doing it we're figuring it out right now right like how do we actually do this so it's okay if your like beliefs evolve and ebb and shift right that's kind of the point you're learning this in real time right so are we yeah, yeah. absolutely <laughs> and now you're married uh so so um yeah like i think this this is the beginning of that process right where we start trying to figure that out and we're going to make mistakes we're going to kind of fumble through it but i think the the fundamental point that should become pretty clear to people listening is that taking uh, a template of not yeah. eating meat doesn't jive with this idea of how do I reintegrate myself in my local ecology, right? How do I reintegrate myself into a bigger system that I'm equal to everything else, both the deer and the wolf, right? I'm, and it's I'm, really important, like equal to everything else. Like we had a whole section on hierarchies and anthropocentrism, right? Like if what does it mean to actually dismantle hierarchies? It means you see the value of a plant the exact same as you would see the value of an animal. Right. That's literally what it's what it means. You see the role and complexity of a single celled microbe and its ecosystem as equally critical and vital to the role of any other like big land mammal living in that ecosystem. Right. And what that means is your relationship to them is still like way nuanced and complex. Right. Where it can't be just that I can eat any plant as ever I want because it's like barely living. Right. And I mean, that's what a lot of this like reductive like idea of making a moral argument for eating plant-based products really comes down to, right? That people like animals are seen as quote unquote sentient being, which is a completely made up subjective idea, right? What the fuck is sentience? And we can get into AI and talk about how you can code sentience, but we're not gonna do, we're not gonna for another time. But so 
even putting that aside, right? Like it's it's perceiving animals as deserving of 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 something, right? The lack of consumption or whatever it is, lack of seeing them as as a part of you in any way by sheerly their proximity to humanity, right? So they look like you, a little bit similar to you. The more their arbitrary behaviors are perceived to be more human-like, then you care more, right? Because even within animals, it's like, what about insects? What about like anthropods? What about marine animals? What about small ground like animals that are like literally wrecked by any sort of industrialized crop production, right? Or insects and pollinators, like what about those, right? So something about certain types of animals that are that are focused on and, 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 and really, really paid attention to, and it's because of the proximity to be people, right? Even domestic like pets being focused on more than certain other animals. It's because of their proximity to being a comfort or source of comfort for, for human beings, right? And that's really, that can't ever be the like, either animals are just objects of our consumption or they're exotified in some way, or we're just eating them. No. <laughs> and we're not thinking about anything else outside that realm. Yeah, um, now I, I think, you know, we, we've talked a bit about the ecological component from the sense of um, how veganism isn't really compatible as like mm -hmm. a universal food system yeah. um, with local ecologies. Yes. Uh, what I do want to also talk about is this idea of climate change, right? And that veganism yeah. is going to solve climate change. Yeah. Um, and I, I think as you've probably noticed, like if you're going to have to clear a landscape to grow vegetables because um, it's the, the needs of that ecosystem can't provide human consum uh, consumptive foods mm -hmm. uh, like that. That's going to be an entropic system. It's not going to be good. Uh, mm -hmm. But additionally, I think uh, the, the argument is usually on the side of um, meat production. Right. Mm -hmm. So it's, the argument is often and like in no way are we defending the current meat system. And mm -hmm. I'm happy to go into detail if people have questions mm -hmm. about um, what you know, what exactly CAFOs are, some of the problems with them and so on. I'm happy to do that. But I do want to focus on this other side because we're the problem. And one of the issues I think a lot of vegans have is like, why are you arguing with us? We're, you know, quote unquote, on the same side of like overthrowing capitalism or whatever. However, I, if we're trying to, or like, they'll say like, well, vegan capitalism, at least like reduces mm. the destruction mm. of animals and can and be reduced climate change. Yeah, and um, I do want to talk about exactly what meat production is in terms of uh, the the commonly cited statistics. So the big one that everyone always talks about is around soy, right? Mm -hmm. So the whole argument is that like soy, seventy seven percent of it's grown for meat, right? Mm -hmm. But here's the thing: it's not actually seventy seven percent is grown for uh, for meat. Mm -hmm. What it actually is is that twenty percent is grown for oil. And that oil has a byproduct, a patty that is basically um, some of it is extra has isolate proteins extracted from it. So if you've ever mm -hmm. seen on a product like uh, soy protein isolate, it's that uh, it's mm -hmm. after the oil process. And then whatever's left after that, which has still a decent amount of protein, it has cellulose, which is not con uh, digestible by humans, mm -hmm. is then fed to livestock. If sure. we didn't have livestock, the alternative would probably be compost maybe some kind of very low efficiency fuel could come out of it. Um, but that's what it is. It's not that, you know, if there's a hundred acres, 77 acres of soy is grown for meat. What it is, is they take the whole crop, they take the oil out of it, which is actually the most profitable part of the plant. So mm -hmm. when people go and, you know, say, I'm going to grow 10 acres of soy, um, 
the the money they're really making is from the oil. It's not from feeding cattle. That is yep. something that helps supplement their their you know income. So they're not doing it so like the meat industry can continue to thrive. They're doing it because they make money on the oil side, which mm -hmm. is really complicated because uh, the reality is that why soy is so successful is it's a bean. So if it's a bean, it's nitrogen fixing. So it has mm -hmm. benefits for the soil. Um, so it can rotate usually with like corn or cotton or tobacco or something like that. Yeah. Um, but also it's a really fast growing plant that's really resilient. Um, so it doesn't need as much, um, you know, management in the sense of like, uh, and that's worrying what, about like, disease and pathogens. Farms power, right? Like least and most out. Yeah, exactly. And, um, the reality is that soy oil, you know, it's one of those things people are like, I've never even really heard of soy oil. Like I assume it's out there because like soy is so popular, but like soy oil is like the basis of all of our processed foods. Now, you know, vegan, uh, and we're going to kind of pick on like mainstream veganism, um, like that the mainstream vegan diet is heavily relying on processed foods, whether it's the soy isolate uh, in like veggie burgers or like just like any food that's processed to be packaged and stuffed on a shelf has yeah. soy oil in it. Right. And um, most of those things are also vegetarian, whether it's mm -hmm. chips or Oreos or anything mm -hmm. like that. Mm -hmm. um, and like that is a problem. That's absolutely a problem. Like soy is a problem. No one is disagreeing with that. But scapegoating the meat component of it is like scapegoating the byproduct of anything else where the main thing, you know, I, I, I can't really think of a good example off the top of my head. Like, um, but like just like the whole idea of like blaming the soy industry on something that's like a secondary market product is like totally letting off the hook, like the major food producers mm -hmm. that are causing this, you know, deforestation and so on. And I think that to me is analogous to, for example, green capitalism and really how like greenwashing really is is a campaign even thinking about like the earliest like inceptions of the british petroleum campaign for people to take individual accountability for carbon emissions right like your own footprint the carp the idea of an individual carbon footprint and how it got people to can be convinced that these individual choices that they're going to make right their individual recycling their individual amount of how much they can cut down their electricity bill, right? It's somehow going to contribute to changing the state of our planet. Whereas at the same time, you have like 20 corporations responsible for 75% of our carbon emissions, right? And those, and one of them being BP, one of the top 10 being BP, right? That started this whole individual responsibility campaign. And the real benefit then for them is that they're relegating accountability to individuals, right? So corporations don't actually change their practices and they're actually using like everything from like green, th this whole idea of sustainability and eco-friendly and recycling, all those words, right? They're actually using that to buff up the value of their products and the corporations and their companies to be able to get people to believe that participating and being a consumer in just another way is actually going to help the planet, right? When it's objectively not. And even when that system's not there, engaging in those exact practices and using those practices for the rest of the world is not going to work. Right. And I think that's what we're really trying to focus on that, that this is low hanging fruit for capitalism. Absolutely. And, um, you know, there's a lot of, you know, talking points around veganism around like CAFOs, which are just basically, uh, these confined or concentrated animal feeding operations. Uh, you know, you'll always hear like, oh, they keep these cows in like these, these, you know, little fenced in areas, you know, these little pods basically, um, and that's where they spend their lives. And that's not the case. Um, 
you know, when, when people get meat from the store, even the cheap, you know, cheapest buy, you know, whatever they can afford, uh, that cow has likely spent about 75% of its life on pasture. And, um, this is important to veganism because a, it, you know, it dehumanizes or it, because again, they think of these animals as humans, um, the, the process of raising cattle, uh, whereas they are spending most of their lives doing the thing that they would naturally be doing, um, not to defend CAFOs by any means. Um, but those cow, those cows also provide ecosystem services. They also give value to land that in our capitalist world would be only valuable as sub, you know, subdividable lots for housing or whatever it might be. Mm -hmm. Um, I mean, what you're saying basically is that these animals actually are doing a lot for our ecosystems that goes beyond just being objects of our consumption. And I think that's really important to understand. Yeah. And I think, um, you know, to go back to this question of, okay, if all these things are true and the meat industry is huge, why are they letting this whole, you know, bullshit story basically take place in terms of like the, like, why, why is nobody really like, with all the money they have confronting that 77% figure, right? That seems like the obvious question to ask because it's like, that seems like a good thing to defend, right? If, if you're a meat company and like, there's very easily to disprove figures thrown around. So basically there's a couple pieces to this. The first is that most of the meat producers are also the key owners of like vegan products, right? Mm -hmm. Like 92% of the uh, products that are vegan are owned by like the same companies that make your chicken nuggets. Right. Mm -hmm. So, so either way they end up in front. So why fight with themselves? Um, however, the, the vegan products are actually more profitable. Uh, like the, the profit margins on, on them are much better. Are so like that, yeah. So that is not a bad thing. If pe more people buy vegan products for them. Mm -hmm. Thirdly with climate change, um, like there's real risk of like the Midwest, desertifying right um there's real risk that all those prairies that have existed that the cattle graze on won't exist in the future and that's 75 percent of their diet right so if that diet goes away like that's a problem right where they have to quadruple their inputs to mm -hmm. feed these same livestock that are already running on very low margins so like they have no reason to really challenge this argument and again fully invest in, you know, an alternative because they don't plan to solve climate change. They make more money this way. There's, you know, if you think about it from like a systems perspective, a business doesn't want variability. Having mm -hmm. cattle that have to rely on rain is not a good business model. So and everything just from the, uh, perspective of even why are they profiting off of it? Well, like, why are they turning, like not shutting this down creating a whole new industry out of it? Right. Like for oppressive systems to stay, in place, not only do they have to actively overtly like coerce you, right, to make sure that they're that they're maintaining this level of population control, but they also have to make sure there's mechanisms for when people defect, right? To take advantage of people's like altruism, to take advantage of like when they actually want to do something about it. And that's where all of neoliberalism comes from. It's just misdirecting your efforts to things that will never work, right? But will get you to believe that you're actually doing something like useful and then get you to prevent yourself from actually seeing the real problem for what it is, right? And then whole industries can be created based on that. So for example, something as simple as like psychotropics, right? And and like the entire like field of psychiatry and how it's a really just a mechanism to get people to fall back in line and, and, and pathologize people's like distress they're experiencing in response to oppression. 
and find a way to make it an individual problem. Like, hey, you're just broken. There's something wrong with you that you need to fix, right? And gaslighting you instead of getting you to ever see that the oppressive systems around you and the lack of community and connection you have is the problem, right? And that gives you real solutions. Like, hey, maybe I should connect with other people. Maybe what I actually need to feel a little bit better is to have harsh boundaries and institutions so they exploit me a little bit less, right? But instead they're telling you, hey, this is all the stuff that you need and the meds you need to take to get back to work. So there's all the incentive for them to actually take these problems and then create new industries out of potential solutions that they're giving you. They're non-solutions. Yeah. And I think that's the point here is that, you know, when we start talking about these solutions, it's not that veganism is inherently bad or anything like that, but it's not a solution and painting it as a solution is dangerous. And yeah. that, that is the part that I think is really important to understand in this nuance. It's that veganism isn't a bad thing, but, you know, you're going after the wrong problem. And that doesn't mean we're defending the system that's in place by any means. I mean, but no, like, to, I feel like we yeah. can all agree, like at baseline, that factory farms are bad, like commodification and abuse and torture and manipulation and extraction, and exploitation of human beings, animals, plants, the land is bad. I think we're all on the same page, right? But to then default from that by saying, therefore, just avoiding meat products is going to be the thing that saves us all is not the solution. Yeah. And, you know, when with this idea of like, how do we solve this problem? Um, we have to, I guess, to go back to how this conversation began, think about what that landscape needs. What, How does that landscape respond to certain management? And how does that guide what that food process and process looks like, right? Mm -hmm. So how do we look to the landscape around us? How do we look to the history of that landscape and the future of what that landscape is going to look like because of climate change to start thinking about what these solutions are? And it's not going to be a simple thing to figure out. The, mm -hmm. the reality is that with climate change, it's going to be probably unexpected and we need to, you know, use as much, uh, as much knowledge as we can to start that process. And, uh, recognize that there are a multitude of uh, tools that we have for solutions, right? Mm -hmm. From indigenous management of that landscape, from the indigenous history that all of us have from where our ancestors came from, um, to, you know, modern day scientific solutions mm -hmm. of finding ways to help plants um, develop certain traits that can help them prepare for climate change. Mm -hmm. There's no one size fits all, but taking all of these things together and and realizing that you're going to take a different approach depending on where you are, right? Realizing that what we need is a multiplicity of solutions, that that is, is exactly what makes an ecosystem resilient, biodiversity, right? And therefore, to address oppression with a one-size-fits-all solution is the opposite of that, right? Embodying nature literally means embodying that biodiversity by understanding that I need different ways of, like, approaching this problem and different people with different, like, backgrounds and walks of life and different perspectives and different cultures to be able to actually like work toward these solutions and we can actually coexist and sustain that kind of diversity yeah and um to i guess bring that back to like modern times you know one of the challenges in the conversations around veganism um is around how our communities exist today so mm -hmm. you know not only is veganism incorrect in being a solution because of that nuance to the conversation, but also the, the, the inherent coercion that everyone needs to be vegan uh, to save the planet, to save the animals, whatever it might be, um, is, is annoying for a middle-class suburbanite, but it's a downright 
colonialism for the rest of us. (laughs) Yes, it's unsafe for communities in food deserts and things like that, where, you know, McDonald's uh, might be the cheapest protein so that, you know, people can develop appropriately. Yeah, not just even that, like communities that are living in sub-Saharan Africa for, for the majority of the year, they are not going to be able to cultivate product uh, plants. They're not going to be able to actually harvest any crops. And what they can do is get a lot out of even a single animal that they have, not just in terms of consuming it, but in terms of being able to like coexist with that animal, right? To be able to actually, like they would starve with a plant-based diet. And, and people need to understand that, right? People need to understand that there's communities that are living closer to the poles where for majority of the year, it doesn't make any fucking sense for them to have a plant-based diet. They would die. And going back to like how this has even been done, for example, in South Asia or the South Asian peninsula, how like, yes, it's made for some Hindus to be vegetarians because that has made sense for their local ecology, but it hasn't been for like my tribal community that's also Hindu, but is pescatarian because of their proximity to coast and their stewardship looking very different because they're at this intersection of land and water. And that dramatically changes your food practices, right? So something as simple as that, like they would not be able to survive. So, and they shouldn't have to even explain that, but now I'm all, all of a sudden answering to a bunch of these like fucking privileged views telling me, to quote unquote, listen to other black and brown vegans. And I'm like, please do not scapegoat our communities for your talking points. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Um, and that's where, you know, I think the importance of going on and having these conversations, you know, we can say a lot more in uh, at this point, 50 minutes than, uh, you know, a couple <laughs> of memes. And if people want to engage with us, we're happy to chat. Um, so, what was one of the things I wanted to talk about? So we did talk a bit about this idea of um, food deserts and the ethics of mm-hmm. that concept. Um, you know, we, oh, uh, so someone did uh, bring up in the comments earlier uh, this question around, um, or at least hinted to it. I'm not sure exactly how it was worded off the top of my head, but generally this idea of like a lot of vegans who then get called out on that exact point of, you know, telling indigenous people they can't eat meat is that indigenous people are the only people that can eat meat, which raises a whole bunch of other questions, right? Um, A, who who qualifies as indigenous? um, And B, if somebody is indigenous in, say, in New York City, where are they going to get said meat? Oh, good God. The question of uh, cost for those people that it do also want to shows you've never actually fucking talked to a goddamn indigenous person your entire life. Like, like, what are where are you getting that from? Like, it is wor- y- y'all realize it is worse to say something like, "Hey, this one community can never get it wrong." right like this one community can be can can have this exceptional like monolithic identity that we assign to them and then reduce them to something like we like we pretend we understand and then everybody else is different like you realize you're literally forcing stereotypes onto people and then like creating it's it's, yeah it's basically the concept of noble savage right Mm -hmm. like we have evolved past the point of needing meat but we cannot ask these people because that is unacceptable uh and and that's like inherently problematic too right and um, that's something we're actually going to dive into a bunch uh, more in following chapters of the zine and probably, uh, you know, explore a little bit further in future episodes on here. So, um, yeah, I think that's just about everything we had wanted to cover. I don't want to go too deep into that just because, again, <laughs> we're going to be talking about it more in the future and we are running up on an hour now. Uh, so if folks do have a question, please drop it in. Uh, Aisha, anything we didn't talk about that you wanted to? 
just that we'll have another meme carousel this week. She's very excited. <laughs> like, I, it's sad because I think it says a lot about my trauma. Like, why do I thrive off of people yelling at me and just like calling me mean things? I don't know, but we will not get into it. But no, that's for another day. That is for another day. But what we will talk about is I think it's just interesting from a teaching perspective or learning perspective for me to observe dynamics manifest online on comments and uh, I like I won't engage but it is just interesting because it ends up being a microcosm of all the things we're talking about so if you yeah. can not get too triggered there's lots to learn <laughs> um but other than that the comment section is not where any revolution will ever be and only people that can ever hold you accountable are people that you're in relationships with so remember that <laughs> yeah. you can't hold any other stranger accountable that's not how it works. Um, so someone did mention in the uh, comment section this idea of cultured oil um, mm. from algae. And I'm assuming that you would know more than I do since you're a microbe scientist. Okay, so there is, I have to actually look at the specific, well, I don't know if there's a specific type of uh, cultured oil that you're referring to, but there's been tons of efforts about using just generally like microbes, right? Like bacteria, algae. Um, and just trying to get them to be repurposed to produce like essentially quote unquote alternative, sustainable, eco-friendly products, right? And even oils, like that's a huge industry, like alternative fuels basically. So in all of that realm, if it's still happening under the framework of capitalism, it won't matter. <laughs> it will be leading to inevitable like habitat destruction and also exploitation of microbes to be able to do like all this destruction essentially. And essentially there's no way to do it under that, but can it offer us important solutions? Yes, I think what we're moving towards is like understanding what it means to actually be in a good relationship with microbes. So for example, now there's like a lot of literature and focus in the scientific field on like the gut microbiome, right? To understand that there's bacteria living in us, on us, like literally we are an ecosystem and bacteria are, are consuming us for food constantly and also like sustaining us, right? By doing all these essential functions that are keeping us alive. So there is a focus, for example, in the scientific community to like focus on how can we sustain these relationships, right? Because now we're understanding they're not just bad. We like we've depended on them all along and they've kept us alive. And but now it's interesting to see how capitalism commodifies that. And you have like the probiotic industry, right? The industry that's trying to use microbes to just get you to like cure yourself of depression and shit. And it's just like wild seeing it happen because I but I you think lactobacillus it, won't cure my depression it won't no yeah but I think it's cool because I am excited to see how microbial ecology is becoming like definitely a more popular focus and people are understanding right through the lens of like it's like the epitome of being able to explain that there's no hierarchies right if you're dependent on and at the mercy of a single cell organism so people are understanding microbes through so many different ways literally a pandemic to now people are being obsessed with like fungi all of a sudden, right? Um, but I think it's cool because people are understanding like what it actually means to be in community with a single celled organism, right? And how yeah. you studying from it, learning it, understanding it is like far more important than anything else. And there is no binary of like pathogen and just like something good. It's actually all in the middle and they're affecting us and we're affecting them. So I think that's the cool thing that I'm excited for. Yeah, yeah. Um... I have no comment because I don't know shit about algae. So, <laughs> um, someone else asked uh, where we are and what we're working on um, or what we can work on together. So we have um, different podcasts as well. Uh, the Four Pearls Almanac, obviously for me. Uh, actually, I don't know. Are you on Facebook? 
I am like me as a human being is on Facebook. I have like a page. Okay. <laughs> but I am on Substack. It's wokescientist.substack.com. And that is what I'm trying to do to decentralize my education as much as possible because Instagram scares the shit out of me. <laughs> yes, and that is woke scientist, like the cool woke person. That's a scientist. Oh. Uh, and she's also on Instagram uh, as woke scientist. So I know most folks following or listening, or watching, I guess, probably more watching, know the Poor Proles Almanac, uh, not so much uh, Aisha, despite the fact that she's much more famous than I on Instagram. Uh, <laughs> so we'll be doing this every couple weeks for at least a couple more weeks. Um, and uh, as Aisha said, we I guess we'd be the... down to, if you want to really give us input and like actually help shape something uh, as we're writing it, because we wanted to write the zine I think that's important to mention because we wanted to write this zine in a way that it's a little bit different than how we put things together. We didn't want to just throw it together and have it out there. We wanted to actually like actively do it chapter by chapter and share that with folks and kind of see how that response goes and what people like resonate with, what we observe that's interesting in teaching us and then kind of use that to shape the second chapter and so on and so forth. So I think if you do want to contribute and like give us examples of stuff that would be cool to discuss or anything like that, then on like wokescientist.substack.com, just go on the chapter and like the first chapter that we release and just comment there. Cause I think that's where like we read those comments, it's filtered away from Instagram, right? And it actually takes you to get through a post to actually comment. So I feel like that takes a little bit more patience. So yeah, that would be really cool if like people want have like input or ideas of like things that we could discuss. Like you could just like drop a comment on the chapters. Yes. Um, so yeah, any questions, comments, concerns, please drop them in the comment section because as just stated, uh, your input will impact what the uh, second chapter looks like. And I am promising that the uh, Instagram comments did have a slight change in how we were framing some of the stuff for the second chapter. Um, so yeah, I, I think that's everything I've got. Mm-hmm. Thank you for not yelling at us. There was one person that yell, yelled at us, and I was like, fuck, but that's it. <laughs> uh, yeah, thank you so much. Uh, you can, if you missed some of this, you want to catch up, it'll be up on our YouTube. Also, we uh, did grab the Gastropocene, uh, in, uh, what's it called? Podcast handle. God, I cannot think today. So we will post it as a podcast for people that want to tune in there. Otherwise, we'll see you in a couple weeks. This is lots of fun. Thanks so much. Goodbye. <laughs>